Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, where we are trying to make better conversations in healthcare. I'm so excited today. My guest is Dr. Lee Sharma. Dr. Sharma and I have literally been trying for like three months to schedule this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And for everybody listening who's like a mom, a business owner, works full time, like you get it. Like you have the best intentions in the world and just life gets in the way. So Lee, I'm so happy to have you. Dr. Sharma is a gynecologist in solo practice in Auburn, Alabama. She started her practice in 2001. So we were just commiserating. We're both in like the multiple decades club of being in practice, which seems like we'd be old, but we're absolutely not old. We're just experienced, right? Wouldn't you say that? We're not old. Not at all. Listen, you look like a million bucks. So we're going to have to talk about your skincare routine or something. Amazing. So I am a primary care doctor, as now you know, obviously, and you're a gynecologist. And a lot of people would say that gynecologists are also primary care doctors, right? You provide a woman's, you know, essential reproductive health. Um, So I'm sure you've had your fair share of good and bad healthcare conversations. Let's start there. Can okay. you tell me about, you pick either a great situation, conversation that you've had with a patient or maybe one that you're like, oh, that could have gone better. I actually, and it's so great, Christine. Thank you. I'm so excited about being here. And it's actually really interesting because I had one of those today. No, um, I had one of those today. And so it actually, it this is a great opportunity to talk about it. Um, but it was a new patient that I had been referred from a doctor in Roanoke, which is about an hour north of us, um, who had painful periods. She's been gone. To, she went to the emergency room a couple of times. She went to her primary's office, had an ultrasound, didn't really have significant findings, but she's referred to me for further evaluation. The primary had sort of touched on with maybe endometriosis. So maybe this is something to be working on. So this is the first time I'm meeting her and I'm getting a history and I'm Mm -hmm. talking about her previous workup. And she says to me, I just want this gone. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let me get a little more info. Let me do an exam. Let me take a history. Started asking her about other systems, you know, GI, urinary. Sometimes those can be a question with dysmenorrhea. So I'm taking this history. And as I'm taking this history, she is getting frustrated with me. Mm. And as she's getting frustrated with me, I start to realize it's like, okay, so this person's expectation is that she was going to come in today and this problem is going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely the expectation. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is absolutely, we want to fix this, but we probably have a little work to do before we get to a fix because we still don't really know why this is happening. Mm-hmm. And as we went through and I'm talking to her and I do her exam and it's like, okay, so your exam actually looks really good. I think endometriosis is a consideration. I think this is how we can address that. I think irritable bladder syndrome might be a consideration. I think we can address it this way. And I think if we do all of those things and it's not working, then we start looking at surgical things. Then we start mm-hmm. looking at trying to get more data that way. And I can tell, and and any, I I feel like any physician that's been in the room with the patient that you have a a sense or a vibe of where where the patient is. And you can tell when the patient is on board and you guys are collaborating, or if the patient's like, "Mm, I'm I'm not really feeling what you're putting down. Yeah. And I can definitely tell she was not, she was not picking up when I was putting down. And so I said, so I totally understand that this is maybe not what your expectations were, but unfortunately to jump right into something surgical may not be a good idea. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, I think it was a little better, but Mm -hmm. I don't think it was quite, I I did not feel like we were just right together. I felt Mm -hmm. like there was a little bit of questioning there. And in reflecting on this conversation about, okay, so the patient had expectations. 
And these were not expectations that I set up, unfortunately, because this is the first time I'm seeing her. So this is one of those things that I I always tell, and I talked to my husband about this, and he's also a physician, you know, worldview and the worldview the patient brings to the, to the interaction and the worldview you had to the interaction are always two different things. Mm -hmm. So the patient's worldview was that she was going to come to see me and I was going to immediately fix her problem. That she got in with a specialist and the specialist was going to fix her problem. And my worldview is, I want to fix you. I just don't know enough yet to really do that. Yeah. And I think what, and, 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 and it's interesting because I think in terms of addressing the patient's expectations, one of the things that I feel like I could have done is I could have said, I really want to make sure that I do fix your problem, but I want to fix it the right way. Mm-hmm. And the right way may not be the immediate way. Mm-hmm. And when I reflect on that, the idea that when you want to help the patient, the patient's expectation is do it right now, just because they want to feel better. It's not, it's not for any other reason than they're hurting. Mm-hmm. You know, she says it takes her away from quality of life. It affects her on her job. She wants this addressed. Yeah. Absolutely. I get it. But I feel like one of the things I could have done is I actually could have addressed the expectation earlier in the visit. And actually said to her, I absolutely want to help you with this. I want to help you with this as fast as I can. I think this is a way forward. And then at that point should have seen, could have seen where she was with it. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because I don't think the conversation ended badly, but in retrospect, I think it's one of those things that I think if I had addressed the expectations of the patient sooner, I actually could have gotten a little better buy-in towards the end Mm -hmm. of Absolutely. Wow. What a great example. And something that translates to everything. And for us on like a microscopic scale, like one thing that happens in our practice all the time is the expectation that somebody's going to get an antibiotic. So they come in, they're sick. They've been sick. Cause usually Mm -hmm. like if you're sick for a day, you're not going to the doctor. Um, But now they want something. They're here. They've paid their copay. They are expecting something to make them feel better fast. And it's so hard when you have to tell a patient like, no, you have a virus. I can't prescribe an antibiotic. It's not going to help you. But they have come in 100% with this idea. Their worldview is that their sickness is going to get better with an antibiotic. And so I'd love to hear what you think about this. So one of the things, this is never fast, right? It's like never solutions in medicine are never fast. Right. So for us in our practice, part of it was just changing the culture of antibiotic use in mm-hmm. our community. So yeah. we literally had to start, you know, a campaign of education, you know, here's when antibiotics are appropriate and here's why they may not be appropriate. And here's what you'll find in our practice. We may prescribe, but only in the right settings. Yeah, 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 yeah. And still there are patients who are obviously not, like you said, bought into that philosophy, but mm-hmm. at least it's uh, it's out there and people will understand it before they come in. So do you find that in your specialty, that's a thing? Like once people hit your door, they're expecting surgery? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it may not even be surgery. Actually, I feel like a lot of where I get this is not even really surgical management, it's hormone replacement therapy. Oh. Hormone replacement therapy is a big area where exactly what you're describing with antibiotics is very much what I experienced with HRT. And I think just like when you're describing the patients that they have a set of symptoms, you know that this is probably viral, is you know, green is good, you know, we probably know that it's viral. <laughs> But the expectation is that the antibiotic will fix me. And that's what I want so much. What we see with hormone replacement therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, the patients have, and, and a big part of that too, I think is that there is a lot of material online. Some of it's great. Some of it Mm -hmm. may be not as great. Yeah. (laughs) The patients have read and they come in and they've consumed this information and they are convinced that hormones are going to fix every single thing wrong with them. And so they're coming in to see you and they say, I want hormones. And it's like, okay, well, what symptoms are you having? And when you start breaking them down, sometimes they need other medication. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a a question of weight loss and we need Mm -hmm. to do interactions in terms of exercise and nutrition journaling, things like that. 
but if the patient's expectation is that an that a hormone will fix them, so much of what you're trying to do is there's reasons why we do it. And there's things that it will help with, no doubt. But not everything that the patient comes in with is going to be fixed with giving them hormones. And it is very much that educational process of this symptom is likely hormonal. This symptom, maybe not so much. And sometimes if the patient, even if the patient has one symptom, even if I have one thing that will be probably remedied by going on hormone replacement, I can say to them, now this, this will probably help. And we can go, if you're having hot flashes all day, let's go ahead and give you hormone replacement. This is something that I can tell you should help. If the other things get better, great. We love it. That's awesome. But if they don't get better, maybe we can go in this direction and we can try X because this may be better. All right, got one. I have one. Had a patient today. I had a lot of patients today. You had a rough day podcast. today. Really well. Um, <laughs> who actually came in, who had gone to see her primary because she was very tired all the time and her primary had worked her up very appropriately. And one of the things that he did was took a sleep history and she was having daytime sleepiness. Um, my husband also does sleep. So I get all of this data, honestly. And so she's like, I'm really tired. You know, I have brain fog, but I'm sleepy all day. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you because my husband has taught me this. Daytime sleepiness is not normal. And you definitely need to get him to see a sleep physician. She's like, but can we check my hormones? I'm like, yeah, we can check them. I'm down with that. I'm, I'm here. We'll go ahead and, and we'll check the blood. But I really did appreciate the fact that she came in saying, it may not be this, but I thought I'd ask. We can work with that. It's, it's, yeah. It's, and I really appreciated the fact that she came in with this very open-minded perspective of, I get that this may not be my hormones, but I wanted to ask the question. That I love it that she came in with that and it made it a really easy place for us to work from because I can check it for her. And if there is a role for adding some estrogen for her, we you're, can definitely you're do in. that. We can definitely yeah. do that. But we still need to get her into the sleep position. She probably still needs a sleep study and she probably still needs CPAP. So, right. Yeah. But I, I the, very much what you're describing with antibiotics is very much what I see with HRT. So, let's go down that path because I've done many episodes with women who are going through menopause or perimenopause lately. Right. Uh, you know, selfishly, because I'm going through menopause right now. Yeah. I feel like I could absolutely relate to them. Yes. Um, and I find that. We do a really bad job in primary care having these menopause conversations. I was just telling someone, I think it's because we genuinely don't know what to say. And so, like, for example, this is, and tell me if this is what you hear. So this is what we hear in primary care. I'm, uh, I'm irritable. I'm gaining weight. I have brain fog. And sometimes I have hot flashes or night sweats and I know it's my hormones. Can we do some blood work? Like that, that's a very condensed version, right? Right, right. And, and where we come from is, well, okay, you're 50 years old. Your last period was three months ago. Definitely, likely you're going through perimenopause or you've been through menopause, but maybe not every symptom is because of that. Right. And checking your hormones may or may not help anything, right? Like mm -hmm. if a woman hasn't had a period in a year, like, guess what? Your FSH is going to be high. Your estrogen is going to be low. Your progesterone is going to be low. Not sure what we're checking for, but right. okay. But then there's this massive resistance to, especially the sleep. You know, I always try to tell people, if you're tired and you have brain fog and you're not sleeping, you have to sleep first. Like right. do that first and see how you feel. Nobody likes that answer. And I'm not sure why. Do you feel like it's just that it's too, it takes too long to remedy sleep and start to feel better? So this is this is my perspective. And I think when I'll and, and this that what you just described, all of my friends who are primary care that refer to me. That is probably 75% of their referral is the patient has come in with exactly the list that you gave. And it's like, we're just going to send you to Dr. Sharma and she's going to check this out for you. So that's a lot of the referral I get. And I, I think one of the things that's interesting about hormones in general, um, when, when people talk to us as patients about sleep or depression or anxiety, sometimes 
we can feel like those are personal failings. Those are mm-hmm. things that I control. Mm-hmm. And if if they're not working, then that's something that I'm doing. That's on me. But hormones, when people come in and they're asking about their hormones, you know, you can't do anything about your hormones. Your hormones are your right. hormones. And right. so it sort of absolves the patient mentally from being in that space of responsibility. And so a lot of times I feel like when they're asking that question about hormones, there's there's this idea that I can't help my hormones. And so if my hormones are off, then that's something I can take and I can fix, but that's not something I did. I didn't create that situation. Whereas sleep, weight, those are things that, and granted our physiology, physiology changes with time. Mm -hmm. We lose muscle, cortisol. I mean, all these things change with time, but at the same time, we have a direct role and seeing benefit, we can control our sleep hygiene. We can control when we turn off the phone and get into bed. My husband purposely does not have a TV in the bedroom. This is like his sleep hygiene thing. It's like (laughs) TVs in the bedroom are bad. So we're not going to have a TV in the bedroom, you know, and when you get into bed and you turn off the lights, a very dark room, it's very cool. Like it's good about being married to a sleep physician. (laughs) Sleep hygiene that's taken care of for you. I love it. But I, I really do think that for a lot of us as women, it's, it's just, easier to say it's the hormones. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I do when people come in for that referral, because it's such a common referral is it's like, so there's definitely things that hormones will do. And I do think that people who are perimenopausal, because there's these fluctuations in estrogen, that anxiety, irritability, a lot of that can go with that perimenopausal window. And I think mm-hmm. that is, is true for sure. And definitely the hot flashes and the weight, I think there's a lot that goes into loss of muscle. I think probably there is some role for testosterone, but there's still an opportunity there to talk to the patient about strength training, about nutrition. And so those are things that I have all, you know, pre-printed resources. I already have these written down so I can sit there because most of the time for a lot of these women, they just don't know where to start. They have no idea where to start, you know, and and it, it happens that they come in and they see a healthcare provider and they're told to lose weight. How? Yeah, exactly. Start that. Exactly. They have no idea what that looks like in getting started. And if you can give them, okay, all I want you to do is these two things. This is all I want. I want these two things. And that's something that's very simple for the patient, but they still feel like, you know, even if you didn't necessarily tell them hormones would fix everything going on with them, you still gave them the direction to get a better quality of life. And it's also really interesting, a lot of these clinics that do sort of functional medicine that do a lot of hormones and hormone pellets and things like that, Yeah, yeah. and the patients go to these clinics and they get a lot of medication. But when you start talking to them, they were also told to look at their sleep, (laughs) exercise, reduce the carbohydrates and refined sugars in their diet. And then when they're feeling better, it's like, oh, it was the hormones. Right. So interesting. what that that description of symptoms is something that I think happens a lot. And I think it is really common for all of us as women to to have to confront that. And being busy and being women and being women physicians, you know, we have to maintain our our quality of life, not only for ourselves, but for the people we're taking care of and the people we love. So I think it's yeah. good that, that we have the opportunity. It's like, you know, and we all we know so much more about menopause physiology than I think we used to. Yeah. And I think that helps a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that exactly beautifully said. So one of the things about menopause too is, and I would never say this to a patient now at 50 years old, 51 years old, because I'm, I understand what it is like, you know, to be in it, but there's this feeling that menopause is normal. Like menopause is what's supposed to happen when you get to a certain age and therefore you shouldn't be seeking out, you know, a medical treatment for a normal thing, right? So it's it goes back to that, the patient feeling like they have no control over it. And then especially if a male doctor tries to say to them, well, you know, that's what's supposed to happen, you know, just kind of muscle through. Um, that is so dissatisfying. So, but hormones have risk. So how do you negotiate that conversation? So let's say there's three or four things that could get better with HRT and seven things that may or may not. You're not giving them 
water, you're giving them something that has risk. So how do you, how do you frame that conversation? So one of the things that we always talk about, because a lot of people, when they come in for hormones, that is a common question. I think I am menopausal. Can I have hormones? And so the first place to start that conversation for me is hormones are not something we do just to do. We got to have a reason. And the reason Mm -hmm. why we have a reason is because they do have risks. So this is the reason why I'm not just going to hand you a medication. We got to know why we're doing it. But of course, like in every other sphere of medicine, it's the same thing. We don't just hand people medication. We got a why. And so hormones are no different. And being very clear with the patient about the why, I think is important. And once we've clarified the why, they're having vasomotor symptoms, they're having brain fog, they're having things that are truly disrupting quality of life then we can move on to risks. And when you start looking at risk of, you know, new start, there is a slight increase of deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolus. You know, we go through that with the patients. We go through their history to make sure they don't have contraindications, you know, previous stroke history, all this kind of stuff. So we've gone through all that with them. And then once we clarify all of that, it's the question of, are your symptoms to the point that it's worth this risk to do this medication? Mm -hmm. Most of the time when you've done a good history and physical and you've done all the preventive stuff and you've laid the risk and benefit profile out for the patient, it's a lot easier for her to make that decision. She's Mm -hmm. okay. And a lot of times once you've been through all of that, especially if the symptoms maybe aren't as bothersome or disruptive, the patient may say, you know what? I'd like to think about it. Great. It's like, now that we've had this conversation, you can call us back at any point in time and we can get this ball rolling for you because we've already had our conversation about risks and benefits. We're very clear on our indications. So if you decide you want to do that, that's there for you. And the patients who really feel like, and it, one of the coolest things, I will say this absolutely, one of the coolest things is when you new start someone on hormone replacement for a good indication, you know, vasomotor symptoms, they can't sleep. They they come in and we always do a a two-month follow-up. They come in for the two-month follow-up and you ask them how they're doing and they say, I haven't felt this good in years. And that is the most wonderful thing. That is the most wonderful visit because you can then talk, okay, so shortest amount of time, lowest dosage. Yeah. We'll go go through all the data. And then we now have a plan for the patient to have quality of life again. It's really one of the nicest visits when they come in and they can tell you that. So I feel like when you do that work to be very clear about the indication and then really counsel the patient. And I also think too, you know, I think back to when I was in training in the nineties and all we had was Prempro. We had, yeah. oh yeah, we had, you got Prempro. If you had a hysterectomy, you got Premarin. There you go. All <laughs> and the breadth of things that we can offer ladies now. It's just awesome. We have so many options when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. And so that's the other thing I always tell ladies is like, if you have a clear indication of what you've been through risks and benefits, there is always something. If if option A doesn't work and we're still having disruptive symptoms, we have B, C, D, and E that we can go through. And eventually we will find the thing that's going to work. And we want to tailor that to specifically what the patient's experiencing. So if the patient's having vaginal dryness, it'll be vaginal estrogen. And a lot of times they'll ask, well, am I, can I take something? Like that's not indicated. Right. Having vaginal symptoms, that's a separate compartment. So we need to give you vaginal estrogen. Mm -hmm. I think it's so, it's so powerful when, when women come in and I, and I do agree with you because you were saying that a lot of people think it's a normal process and they don't want to ask about it and they don't want to clarify. It's like, I'm not going to ask. And so sometimes what physicians, what we have to do is open the door for them. And I'll ask them, are you having any daytime hot flashes or vaginal dryness? And then, and it's really interesting. They'll ask about daytime hot flashes. They're very reticent to ask about vaginal dryness. Oh, yeah. And so if you ask them, so are you having any dryness with intercourse? Oh, yeah. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, you don't have to do that. We can do things about that. But that's the other thing. I think asking the patient actively, are you having these symptoms, even if she's not complaining about them? Mm-hmm. It kind of gives them the opportunity to to recognize that there are things that we can do. It opens the door, right? Yes, right. Excellent. So let me ask you about this conversation that I had with a patient maybe 15 years ago that I will never forget, and I okay. still to this day wonder if I handled it correctly. So I had a patient who had a history of premenopausal breast cancer. Um, estrogen and progesterone receptor positive. 
and she did great. She had a lumpectomy, I think, and radiation and was fine, then went through menopause and wanted hormones. Um, she, she had all the things. She had the hot flashes and the night sweats and the dryness and all of it. And outside of her history of breast cancer, she would have said the appropriate symptoms to get hormone replacement there, but she should not be on hormones when yep. she's had a personal history of breast cancer, right? right? So this particular patient wanted me to write a letter that said, I promise that I, if I take these hormones that Dr. Meyer prescribes and I get a recurrence of my breast cancer, I will not hold her responsible. And she's like, what I will do anything. And for her, I think she was even more concerned with her, um, you know, like the, the youthfulness that she felt she had lost when she went through menopause and she was willing to take the personal risk of having a breast cancer recurrence. And I was just like, I I can't like I ju- I would not even though you said you're not going to sue me like I would feel awful if you got breast cancer so she ended up going to another doctor and I'm not sure what happened but how do you handle that conversation when they're willing or they say they're willing to take all of the risk so that they can feel mm-hmm. better what do you do mm-hmm. so I think that's so hard because you do have you know, the patient is so desperate to get this outcome that they are willing to put themselves, what you recognize and everybody else recognizes, you very correctly say, okay, this is not a safe situation. I'm not comfortable doing this for very good reason. And so often when the patient has come in and they're so desperate to get an answer for this, that they're willing to do this, part of what I think we can do, and I have done this before, and I think the times that I have done this I'm I'm sure I've had this conversation, your exact conversation with other people that, you know, they have had a breast cancer history or some other type of thromboembolic. And and a lot of times with me, it's not so much the breast cancer is they've had a previous history of a stroke or, you know, they have active CAD or mm. right that they absolutely are contraindicated, but they're still symptomatic. It's like, dude, I I can't, (laughs) I can't do this for you. Um, I think a lot of times when I kind of have this, this conversation that you're describing is for people who maybe have severe anemia and menorrhagia, that they are, you know, needing transfusions, they're in and out of the hospital, and I'm recommending surgical management. It's like, look, we have done everything we know how to do. I think it's time. I think it just, you know, uterus needs to come out. And, you know, they're not wanting that. They're not wanting that interaction or that intervention. It's like, that's just too much, and that's just too invasive, and I can't do this. And this is what I say to them. Right now, when I look at your clinical picture, I'm scared. Mm. I I'm scared. And when I tell you that I'm scared, I'm basing that off 20 years of doing this. And so when I tell you that I'm looking at your clinical situation and I'm terrified for you, I'm terrified that we're going to keep giving you blood transfusions. And one day we just may not be fast enough to do that. And we're going to end up with a really significant morbidity. This is the reason I'm telling you, this is my recommendation because I'm looking at your clinical picture and based on my experience, I am worried and terrified for you. Mm. And there's something about sharing that with a patient because that is where that's coming from. When we are having that conversation with a patient about a recommendation that we feel very strongly about, that's coming from our knowledge, but it's because we're scared. We're We're the patient. Totally. And so, so, you know, telling that patient where, where this, where my recommendation is coming from and where this interaction is coming from, from me to you is I'm scared for you. Mm-hmm. So I make this recommendation. So the same thing, you know, you're talking to this this lady who has a you know premenopausal breast cancer, who's clearly having these vasomotor symptoms. She's asking for hormones. It's like the reason I'm not giving it to you is not because I don't want to help you. It's because I'm scared to do that to you because yeah. I'm setting you up for a breast cancer recurrence. And when I tell you that I'm setting you for breast cancer recurrence, it's not going to be as simple as getting a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. What if it's in your bones? What if it's in your brain? At that point in time you're trying to get a quality of life and I will have directly contributed to ending it. Mm. I'm not, wow. not going to do that. And how so, powerful is that? That wow. place fear that you communicate. And I actually did. I had a patient when I was, when I was delivering, I think it was my second year in practice. I had a lady that I think she was eight centimeters and I think it was a second baby. Anyway, the strip looked horrendous. The strip was horrible and she was making change. She was dilating, but the strip looked really bad. And so 
I walked in there and I was like, okay, I understand that you want a vaginal delivery. Your baby does not look good. And she's like, I really want, I really want. And I don't remember this, but she told me later that she remembered this. She said, I got in her face and I hugged her shoulders. And I said, you don't understand that I'm terrified for your baby right now. Oh, we got the kid out and she was fine. The kid was fine. But she said to me, like I saw her postpartum and she said, you don't understand what that meant to me when you got in my face and said, I'm scared for your baby. Mm. As you said that to me, I was like, let's go, let's get this baby out because you communicated to me how worried you were. And I, I think doctors, we don't, we want to be professional. Professionalism is awesome, but we care. Yes. We, we care about our patients. And when we're making these recommendations, and especially if it's something that clinically we know could have serious implications for the patient, it is that not, it is that place of fear. That's exactly what yeah. it is causing us to do that. I want to unpack this a little bit. I Oh my gosh, that is amazing. So I know that for me, I've thousands of times said to people, I'm not worried about this. You know, there's an abnormal test. There's like, we have to do something. And I'm like, and they're terrified. I'm like, listen, we have to do this, but it's going to be okay. I'm not worried about it. And they take so much comfort from that. But I don't think I have ever said, I'm afraid for you or I don't know why. I mean, I think being authentic and being vulnerable in a patient's eyes, being someone who's a professional, but still capable of feeling fear. And also I wouldn't be afraid if I didn't care about this person. So, you know, Mm -hmm. being authentic, being vulnerable, showing that you care, of course, those are ways to get that patient buy-in, but I'm not sure why I have never said that. I mean, I think that is Exactly right. And, you know, there's this idea from the example I shared with you that I'm afraid of getting sued. That's the least of my worries. You know, you know, you signing this piece of paper that absolves me of responsibility, whether it holds water in court or not, I don't know. I don't ever want to know. (laughs) Uh, But it doesn't answer the fact that, yeah, I'm going to have a pit in my stomach every time I think about you. If I do, that is so good. has that ever backfired for you? I think, yeah, I think a couple of times. And I and I, I think we're, it, the, the two, the, the couple of times I can think it's gotten me into trouble is the authenticity or trying to be authentically with the patient in terms of your mindset and where you're coming from. I think sometimes you can get so much into that space of caring for the patient that we do start to lose professionalism. We start mm-hmm. to lose so I think mm-hmm. it's one of those things that if you're like, right, you know, we're vulnerable, we're open with the patient, but we're still maintaining professionalism. I think there's that very specific balance that we have to, to have, that line we have to walk. And I think if you go too far past that line, then you start becoming so personal and, and so emotionally invested in what's going on with that patient that you stop being professional. Yes. Point that we start making bad clinical decisions. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you mean you're, it doesn't, I mean, you can love the patient, but you still got to be good clinically. <laughs> I know of at least two situations. One had to do with an IUD that I probably should not have been messing with. And that was, <laughs> I, I was trying so hard to get this patient an IUD that I probably just should have said at some point, I'm trying too hard. I've now crossed over to the dark side and I'm, I don't need to be doing this anymore. And I think we just need to regroup and do something else. Um, some of that too is investing so hard in a plan that you've made with the patient that sometimes you've invested so hard in the plan and you really care for the patient that you needed to stop and go, okay, where am I coming from right now? Am I coming from a place of professionalism or am I coming from a place of that I so desperately want to help this patient that I have now lost that objectivity? Mm. And so I, I, as we're having this conversation, I know specifically of at least two, and I know there's more, but at least two, <laughs> I think that's gotten me into a space of doing things that professionally I probably should not have done. And by the grace of God, they were both just outcomes that were fine. But at the same time, it was just, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. So, yeah, I think it's possible to go too far down that that path. Um, and and I, and I can say that having gone through those two experiences and recognizing, because I think 
specifically with one of them. I did step back from that after the patient was taken care of and had a good outcome. Ended up having, I ended up referring her to a subspecialist, which was the right move. And the subspecialist did beautiful care of her. And the patient's now doing great. But I should have made that referral a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. I didn't make that referral sooner is because I was too much in this space. Mm-hmm. I really want to help her. I really want to help her. I really want to do this. I really think that this is going to be, and, and I didn't pull back far enough from my emotions to realize that I just, you don't need to be doing this and you need to refer. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. So that, this is just the most naturally flowing conversation I think I've ever had on this show. I am t- I could talk to you for two hours, but let me, let me just ask you maybe one last question, Lee, and then I, whatever you want to share, I, I will pick up whatever you're putting down any day because like you and I could be besties. Seriously. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I feel that. Yeah. What I want to ask you is about a mistake. So I had a situation where uh, a patient called me out and said, I've been coming to you for 10 years and you did not do the thing And now I have a consequence that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. And the way that conversation unfolded, and I'm being cryptic for just patient confidentiality, but the way the the conversation unfolded was, he said to me, and I'll never, ever, as long as I live in practice, forget this. He said, I love you as my doctor. I have been coming to you for 15 years. You have helped me through so many things, but you really let me down with this. and." I am still going to come to you. I still trust you with my health and my well-being, but I need you to know that you disappointed me. And it was he and I in the room. And I didn't know what, like, I was stunned. And I found myself saying, I'm so sorry. I absolutely own that. You are right. I should have one, two, three, four, five over the last number of years. And I didn't do that. And I think there are doctors out there who would say, you did, you set yourself up for litigation or you owned that mistake. And in that moment, that was me, my authenticity coming out. Like I didn't know what else to do. So, and then in hindsight, I'm like, well, I mean, maybe that is the right thing to do. Just everybody says, own your mistake. And that's the best way to move on from it. But How do you handle that? Have you ever been confronted by a patient in that situation? Oh, yeah. And and because we're human and we make mistakes. And I I feel like there's one conversation that I think very much that I have had that was very similar to what you had. And it was a patient that I had done a hysterectomy on. And I think in terms of communication, I did not do as good a job communicating with this patient before the surgery. Um, She had an abdominal hysterectomy um, and I was talking to her husband postoperatively and she started bleeding in the operating room. So I had to run back because they came and got me while I was talking to him and I had to run back in there. Um, She was bleeding from the vaginal cuff. We did not have to reopen her, but we did have to, you know, do a vaginal repair for the bleeding. And then I went back out and spoke with the husband. And I told him, she's fine. This is what happened. Um, She had a normal post-operative stay. She came back for her two-week follow-up. And normally the two-week follow-up, you know, we're checking incisions, whatever. And she would not let me examine her. And the nurse gave me the heads up. It's like, so she's in the room, but she she doesn't want to sit on the table. She says she just wants to talk to you. And so, okay. So I went in there and I spoke with her and she said, you know, I really feel like you didn't deliver on what you said you were going to do. This was not what my expectation was. And you really scared my husband when you ran out of the room and didn't say anything to him. When they called you back, you know, he was terrified because he didn't know what was going on. And I really don't think you handled this well at all. And I remember sitting there thinking, I think I had two thoughts. I think the first one was, "You're she's right. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Right about this. And the second was, I feel like the worst doctor on the planet right now. Mm. I feel like I am the absolute worst person, the worst doctor, the worst surgeon. Every bad word you can say about yourself, I said to myself. 
Mm. I said, you're absolutely right. And I'm so sorry. And I absolutely did not communicate with you. And I know I scared your husband and I'm really, really sorry for what happened. And I completely Mm. understand if you want to seek care elsewhere, I'm more than happy to continue to take care of you, but I completely understand your point of view. Mm. And I'm really glad that we're sitting here and having this conversation. And that's where it was because after that, she got up and left. And I was really convinced at that point that I would never see her again. I was absolutely convinced I would never see her again. My dad was a general surgeon and Mm. dad always had a saying, it's like, you know, patients will always try to go elsewhere. If something happens or if you don't do what they want you to do, they will always go someplace else. But when they do, they will discover that they had it better with you. (laughs) Come back. So she came back. She came back two years later and she's been here ever since. This was in probably 2003, 2004. So I have seen her every year since then. And it was really interesting because I do think that, and it, and you're right, we're not taught as doctors to say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are actively, I'm okay, I'm not actively discouraged, but we're not really taught to do that. We're not taught how to handle mistakes. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we get very defensive. Sometimes the ego can take over and, mm-hmm. and makes us sort of put that wall up. When in reality, you know, that, Obviously, this man that saw you as a patient respects you so much, but he wanted to have that understanding with you. Mm -hmm. And on some level, I really appreciated the fact that she was a she sat down with me and I'm sure she had to do that for her. Her closure and her concern, she had to verbalize that with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad she did that. And I do wonder what would have happened if I'd said, ah, well, you know. I'm sorry you feel that way, you know, right? I definitely probably would never have seen her again. And then Mm. that might have been an outcome that would have been maybe didn't end there, you know, right? I, I, I applaud you for saying because it's hard. It is hard in that moment to say I'm so hard, so hard, really difficult. And to be able to just lay that out for the patient and go, I am sorry for what I did. And the other thing dad said, I think, and this was something that dad always said, is invariably you're going to make mistakes, but what you have to do at that point after you say you're sorry is commit to seeing the patient through the complication process of whatever it is that happened. Mm. And I had a patient two years ago. Yeah, two years ago that I did a hysterectomy on that ended up having a horrible pelvic infection. She was in the hospital for a week. She had a percutaneous drain. The drain was in for two weeks. Um, I gave, I, I saw them twice a day in the hospital. I gave her my cell phone number. Um, I had to go after she went from the hospital, I had to go see my daughter at college. And so I said, call me at this time and check in with me. Um, she came to the office every week. This was one of those things that this stuff happens, but as long as the patient knows that you have the patient's back and it's like, yes, this happened. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry this happened, but I will see you through it and I will take care of you. I I think that's the other part of that is that, you know, we don't have these things happen with our patients and then go, oops, sorry, you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> we know well some do some doctors do and I have I have 28 episodes of people who have had those exact experiences and I think you're right I think it's an ego thing and it is two parts for this patient who hasn't had a good outcome it's hearing us acknowledge that we could have or should have done better but then you're absolutely right like how in the world do you wash your hands of someone who it's basically on you that they're in the position that they're in. I mean, it it's easy, I think. It's the easier thing to out of sight, out of mind kind of thing, but it's absolutely terrible for the patient. And I also say, I don't think any patient wants to have that conversation either. Right. I, I mean, I know for me, if I had a, something bad happen, like I, I don't know if I would have the guts or you know, the ability to have a confrontation like that with a doctor and say, like, you let me down. I think that takes tremendous courage. Um, And guess what else? This particular patient, I will never, ever, 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 as long as I live, breathe and practice, 
make that same mistake again. Never. So God knows how many people will have a better outcome because of this permanent, someone used the word brain tattoo today, like that brain tattoo he gave me. I He's changed me forever. And had he not had the courage uh, to say that to me, I don't think, I don't know, who knows how many times that same thing could have happened. So I feel like you have given so many lessons, both for patients and for doctors. Like, you know, if you're a patient, you know, let's talk about expectations, hear what we have to say, you know, what you came in for may not be what you leave with, but it still will be what we think is best for you. For doctors, you know, be vulnerable, be authentic, uh, own your mistakes and see patients through whatever it is. I mean, that's the, that's what we are supposed to do. Um, Do you have any other words of wisdom? I think the biggest thing that sometimes stands in the way of being all of these things, you know, we're talking about listening to patients' expectations. We're talking about being vulnerable and you mentioned it. And I, I think it's so, so true is the ego that we have in the physician role. When we kind of step into that role so often gets in the way of so many things, not just that vulnerability with the patient, but also really listening to the patient really, you know, we're cooperative here. It's not me telling you what to do. We, we are in it. We are in a partnership, you and I, right. as patient caregiver. And I think when I have noticed myself sort of maybe putting a bit of a wall up with somebody or maybe not being as interactive listening as I need to be so often, that's that ego that's starting to rise up. And the, the longer I've done this, the more I feel like I have been able to pick up when I'm starting to do that. And so really being able to listen to your own self and, you know, you're paying attention to the patient, but on some mm-hmm. level, you're interacting with the patient, you're paying attention to yourself. And totally. The way that you feel, okay, there was a, a one of those lectures I went to with my dad. It was actually a lecture on depression. It was so many years ago. And dad was really bad about wanting to sit on the front row. It's like, dad, you want to sit on the front row? It's like, I always want to sit on the front row. And I was like, I'm going to fall asleep. And he's like, no, you won't. You're sitting on the front row. And like halfway through it, he's sitting there and elbowing, making me stay up. But it was one of those videos where it was a patient who had depression and they were interviewing the patient and you were sort of monitoring your response like as the patient's talking and they're clearly very depressed. And you can sort of feel that transference of the patient feeling like they're so depressed. You have to pay attention to your own emotions and that those those feelings and those thoughts that we have when we're interacting with patients are really not only very telling mm-hmm. of what's going on with a patient, but it also is showing us where we might be getting in, in the way mm-hmm. of providing that care. And the older I've gotten, the more I've been able to sort of take that look inside in real time. Mm-hmm. And I really think that not only does that help with patient care and help with that really authentic interaction, because you're monitoring, you can sort of see yourself, any roadblocks, any calluses on the heart that you need to get rid of, do that. But I also think from a mental standpoint as healthcare professionals, it's very healthy. Yes. Able to sort of be very attuned to our own emotions as physicians I think is so healthy and so beneficial. So what I really hope is the more I continue to do this, hopefully I I can continue to be that attuned to what's going on in here and be healthy to take care of other people. Because if I'm not, if I'm not at that good place, I can't be there for anybody else. So I really, I really try, I'm trying to make that something on a daily basis that I I actually have a journal that sits next to my lap, my, my computer, Kermit's seen it a bunch of times (laughs) there. And I just, I, I make notes to myself during the day. Sometimes it's a note of something that went well. Sometimes it's a, 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 a phrase or something that I'm trying to keep in my head for the day to keep me in a good place. But the more I do this, the more I feel like that really helps me. Wow. So, uh, okay. Another lesson learned. I'm going to put something next to my computer and jot notes to myself. 
I think, and you know what, like I said in the beginning, you and I are so similar in our um, stations in life. I think that this is something that comes with maturity. You know, I know my, uh, my 33 year old self that started this practice, it was all ego, all temper, all, all the wrong things. (laughs) I feel that. Oh my gosh. And, but what, but you know, what is this so cool? Because I do feel like you and I have had very similar life paths. Our children are almost the same age. So I have a 25 and a 24 year old. So our children are, well, but I feel like we have had some really very similar experiences and trajectories. And I, so that's so awesome. And don't you think that if we could have like, I feel so validated by a lot of the things you said, number one. Number two, I feel like I genuinely learned things from our, whatever, one hour conversation. I feel like I'm walking away with like enrichment from our conversation. So I, I just feel like if we could do more of that, more of these conversations, and it means telling the truth. It means saying hard things. It means, you know, accepting some of our own, you know, weaknesses as human beings and as doctors. I mean, we would do a much better job. We just would. So uh, aside from please, please, please come back and talk to me again. I I think I'm going to start a Dr. Lee Sharma corner. (laughs) You're just delightful to talk to. I feel like I had a little personal, you know, therapy session. Um, But besides that, I would like for you to please relocate to the Northeast and open a gynecology practice here because we desperately need more doctors like you in our area. Just amazing. Thank you so, so much. For everybody listening, this was Dr. Lee Sharma, a gynecologist from Alabama who was so generous with her time and her advice and her anecdotes. I am, I have goosebumps. I had tears. I'm a little sweaty. Like I got all the feels. Um, If you are a doctor like Dr. Sharma and have any insight to share, please email me. Patients, if you've had a bad or good experience with a healthcare provider, I want to hear from you. Email me, Christine at Christine Meyer, MD. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.